This is um, rather uh, a difficult passage to, to study in detail. It's very easy on the surface. But I wanted, first of all, to give a bit of background, because as I was studying this uh, passage, I felt that I was behaved about some of how the children of Israel have got into this situation. And so, and then uh, consider one of the from the passage itself, and then consider what it means to us. And I think more than that, it over the last few weeks, from Genesis and Exodus, including Joseph, his famous coat, and his tendency to experience fairly dramatic and puzzling dreams. Eventually, his brothers got so incensed by his seeming arrogance that they sold him to some traders, who in turn sold him as a servant to Potiphar, one of the Pharaoh's officials and captain of the guard. For all his dreaming and fantasizing, Joseph seems to have had quite good uh, managerial skills and was of the highest integrity. Uh, for soon, he was entrusted to manage everything that Potiphar owned. After he spurned the advantage, uh, advances of Potiphar's wife, she, uh, she falsely accused him and he was imprisoned. But God was with Joseph and the prison governor was impressed by his talents and he was soon managing the whole prison. Can you imagine a prisoner in charge of the prison? Uh, and he established a reputation for interpreting dreams through which he gained the confidence of the Pharaoh and was made a governor or administrator of the whole kingdom. Through interpreting a dream, the Lord guided Joseph to forecast seven years of famine. And Joseph set about building barns uh, in the current seven years of plenty to ensure that the country could maintain supplies. So how did the children of Israel got involved in all this? Uh, and uh, how did they become enslaved? You remember that Joseph and his 11 brothers were all the sons of Jacob, the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. Jacob and his sons were forced by famine to go down into Egypt at Joseph's invitation, and the family were eventually reconciled. When they arrived, their families were 70 in number, but within several generations, the population had increased to include 600,000 men of fighting age. In the meantime, the pharaoh with whom Joseph had had such a good relationship had died, and the new pharaoh, who had not known Joseph, was alarmed, fearing that if war broke out, the Hebrews could side with the enemy and the Egyptians would be defeated. By the way, these family groups are variously called Hebrews, children of Israel, and Israelites. Um, they seem to be fairly random. Um, so as far as we know, uh, all the families settled successfully. They were good citizens, enjoying a peaceful life in their communities, wholly undeserving of any ill treatment. Although we also know that they didn't mix and the two peoples led separate lives as far as possible. But So Pharaoh, uh, for safety reasons, first enslaved them and forced them into hard labor uh, and then ordered the death of all male Hebrew children. Um, a woman from the tribe of Levi, who was one of Joseph's brothers, uh, hid her child, placed him in a basket, and let him drift down the Nile. 
He was named Moshe or Moses uh, by the Pharaoh's daughter who found him. <clears throat> but being, she recognized that he was a Hebrew, um, and so she awarded a Hebrew woman uh, the task of um, raising him. And lo and behold, the mother of Moses volunteered, and the child and his mother were reunited, although he was later brought up um, by the Egypt, as the Egyptian princess's son. We heard a few weeks ago how Jake, this strange story of how Jacob wrestled with God and was given the name of Israel and became the patriarch of the Hebrew families living in Egypt. God appointed Moses as the Hebrew leader among, along with Aaron, his brother, and commissioned him to lead his people out of Egypt to the land of Canaan from where they'd originated. The second pharaoh had also died by this time, and the third pharaoh was even more uh, removed from the story of the, or the history of the children of Israel. Um, incidentally, my grandfather was called Israel. Um, he um, lived in, in Lancashire, and he used to boast that he'd uh, not taken his wasket off for 40 years. Uh, meaning that he, because he'd in a supervisory position in the cotton mill, he, um, he had his waistcoat on. Uh, whereas the labourers, uh, because conditions were very, very hot and, and humid in textile, this is a cotton spinning mill, um, they, they wore next to nothing, just very, very thin sort of uh, cotton pyjama-like uh, garments. And um, he really was a Lancashire patriarch. He would stand with his thumbs in his waistcoat pocket, I remember it well, and to spout off about some subjects. But he was a very kind and genial man, but at the same time, um, whatever he said, that was what they had to do. Um, on their first approach to the, uh, uh, to the Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron were refused, uh, and the um, Hebrews were made to work even harder, uh, for which Moses and Aaron got the blame. There's no justice in this world, is there? So God's persuasive tactics started. The Nile turned to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the plagues on the livestock, the plague of boils, of locusts, of darkness. It's only when Pharaoh lost his eldest son, which was imminent in this passage we read, um, that um, he gave in and pleaded with Moses and Aaron to take the Hebrews and go, as did the Egyptians, or else we're all going to die, they said. So turn the, to the passage itself. Um, God instructed Moses and Aaron to warn the people what was going on and what they were supposed to do. That was before God's final act of punishment on Egypt, which would be devastating far more than the previous plagues it inflicted on them. Some parts of the passage we've just read see, might seem an unnecessary uh, ritual and rather gruesome, uh, but the passage as a whole is full of symbolism and is referred to many times in both the Old and the New Testament. The rituals would not have seemed unusual or out of place to the family of Israel, but to us, as we'll see, it is uh, like a blueprint uh, for the passion and salvation of, 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 uh, that we can uh, experience. Um, firstly, in, in the passage, we should note that the people were dressed to flee at a moment's notice. Um, 
and, but even so, although they got the coats buttoned up and the sandals on, ready to run, uh, they still took time to carry out these sacred rituals to the letter to honour God. And perhaps when our heads are full of the challenges of the day and our hands and feet are engaged in daily tasks, um, we shouldn't forget our faith that we are God's children and we still need to find time to be with him, to worship him and to honour him. The other thing of note, actually comes outside the reading, but just a few verses later in the chapter, and it was after Pharaoh had lost his eldest son and he eventually recognised that Moses and Aaron were acting for a God whose power he couldn't fight against. He almost pleaded with them to go and take all their livestock and then significantly he adds, and also bless me. It's almost as if in a position of absolute humiliation he was asking God to uh, Moses to intercede with God and to not impose any more punishment for, for his refusal to listen to Moses' repeated requests to give his people freedom. So how can we view this, uh, the Passover and what does it mean to us? When we look in detail and consider the references in the New Testament, it contains a wealth of signs and pointers to the crucifixion and resurrection. The Passover, as an event in history, uh, was obviously a, of crucial importance for Jacob's family, the children of Israel, and their future uh, lives in freedom in the land of Canaan. But for us, it's more than that. It foretells in many different ways different aspects of our salvation. It basically commemorates three things. Firstly, the tenth and last plague upon ancient Egypt in, in which, after many warnings, God passed over the whole country and killed all the firstborn. Though this terrible and final act um, freed the children of Israel from, through this final act, God freed the children of Israel from their life of slavery and servitude. Secondly, it commemorates the death of Jesus Christ, who was and is the firstborn Son of God, the Father. Through Jesus' awful death, God freed us spiritually from our captivity and slavery to the world, to Satan and sin. And finally, it commemorates the, the baptism and confirmation of every Christian when we formally accept the death of Jesus, when we ask him to apply his priceless sacrifice to our sins, when we ask him that he would cover and blot out our sins with his blood. So the first thing to notice is that the Passover in the period we now call Easter coincide exactly. In the Gospels, you'll find references to the Passover in Jesus' betrayal, his trial, and his crucifixion. The Last Supper took place on the same day as the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Uh, in fact, the Jews held um, and hold uh, two feasts. The Passover, as detailed in our passage, followed by the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, in which they commemorate their deliverance and the start of their long journey through the barren wilderness. 
Yeast had come to signify sin and pride and impurity. Puffing ourselves up with self-importance might be that phrase. We can ask God to purge our hearts and minds and remind us what he has delivered us from. Um, Actually, I feel that um, uh, calling it um, a feast is stretching things a bit. Um, I can't imagine anything less appetizing than the week on matzos. But that is the whole point. It's a time of humility and sober reflection on what the Lord has done for us. And his pain and sacrifice. Perhaps we could all do with setting aside a period of simple living to enable us to concentrate on spiritual matters. There is, however, although lots of similarities, and as I said, it's a blueprint, there is, however, one big difference between the Passover and the crucifixion and resurrection. The letter to the Hebrews states that the sacrificial killing of animals could not finally take away sin, but it was necessary to await the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It proceeds to explain that Jesus Christ offered one sacrifice that was acceptable to God and that he lives forever as the believer's high priest, replacing the Jewish sacrificial system. As the writer says, if this wasn't true, Jesus would have had to have died many times. So for this reason, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the innocent Lamb of God, slaughtered for the blood that takes away our spiritual death. There are other links to how we, believe, we live as our Christian lives. This passage is, is really packed with gems. Firstly, the sprinkling of blood showed not only their identity, but also their faith. Their faith that their eldest child would be protected. The blood on the doorframe was a visible symbol of faith, as we were talking about just before. Just as we can openly profess our faith as Christians, the lamb died that the firstborn might live. Secondly, the Hebrews were told to select a year-old lamb without blemish. Peter, in his first epistle, told us that we were redeemed not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. A, a, A lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus, the Lamb of God, meek and mild in his prime. We should note that for a lamb, it would have been nearly an adult. Uh, by the time it, uh, in its prime at one year old. Similarly, Jesus died in his prime, in his early 30s, when he could have had so much more to do and so much more to achieve. Thirdly, the Hebrews are instructed to slaughter their selected lambs at twilight. And similarly, by the time Jesus cried, it is finished, and breathed his last, it was the end of the afternoon and not far off dusk. Fourthly, people selected the lamb for slaughter four days beforehand, just as Jesus entered Jerusalem four days before his crucifixion. Fifthly, the lamb was killed to be fed upon. By faith at the communion table, we receive spiritual nourishment, but we need to carry out the positive action 
of eating and drinking in order to benefit from it. And lastly, sixthly, later on in verse 46, when celebrating the Passover, the Israelites are instructed not to break the bones of any of the slaughtered lambs. This might be familiar with that phrase because it's referred to in John chapter 19 when John explains that the scriptures were fulfilled when the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear instead of breaking his legs to check that he was dead. So although this passage seems on the face of it to be interesting but not really relevant to our Christian life, the apostles considered it extremely valuable as an insight into Jesus's passion and sacrifice and we can praise the Lord that the scriptures give such a valid picture of Jesus's love for us and what he suffered in order to bring us into God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.